Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, episode number 22. My name is Christopher Luft, and I'll be your host. On today's episode, I sit down with the one and only Matt Bromley to talk through some cutting-edge intel coming out of Lima Charlie's Slack channel. And after that, an interview with Rich Hyman, Chief AI Officer at Silver Sky, where we chat about the state of ML and AI as it relates to cybersecurity. Hey, Matt Bromley. Thanks for coming back to chat Intel with us again. I had a lot of fun last time and even learned a thing or two. Hey, you know, I got to say, I had an awesome time. I really appreciate being able to jump on here and talk about some of the things that are coming up in our uh, community Slack. So thank you for having me. Uh, For anybody that missed last week, this is a new segment on the show that we're trying out, which was inspired by the Intel channel recently created on the Lima Charlie community Slack. There's just so much great information being posted there. I wanted to bubble it up and Matt was kind enough to step up and help us go deep on it. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a really, really cool way to to kind of represent and speak to the things that are concerning our Lima Charlie community. Um, the Intel Detections Chat uh, is a really, really cool location because it is a spot where folks are talking about the things that matter to them. Uh, they're talking about the, you know, it's not a constant stream of every single threat that's out there. It's very targeted, focused discussions about here's the things that I'm concerned about or that my customers are concerned about. And again, it's a huge, like a huge advantage to be able to have that type of chatter going on in our channel. So if you're not in our community Slack, please, by all means, join it. For those who are in there, a huge hat tip for keeping the conversation going. Uh, the first one I got here is uh, Menlo Labs has uncovered an unknown threat actor that's running an evasive threat campaign which is being distributed via Discord and is targeting government entities. Apparently, the threat actors are using a compromised domain of a nonprofit as a command and control, or C2, to deliver a secondary payload. What do you know about the infection chain here, and why would they choose a nonprofit to distribute additional malware? Yeah, so this is a a really interesting case. This came up, uh, I think this is pure cryptor, which is uh, kind of the piece of malware, the downloader, um, which which then kind of subsequently leads to the downloading of another payload. So for anyone who's curious about kind of the way that infection chain takes place, um, in in some cases, an adversary will send you what is the malware. Um, And in other cases, they'll end up sending a first file that then downloads a secondary file. Um, And believe it or not, sometimes it's just really good business operations. So you can have an initial downloader and then you can change the configuration on the back end of what the secondary downloader does or is. So that way you can either distribute multiple pieces of ransomware or you can use the same initial downloader for multiple campaigns. This particular one, which is making use of Discord and then subsequently making or not subsequently, but concurrently making uses of nonprofit sites, I, I think is a, an interesting approach. So adversaries will typically try to blend into the noise as much as they possibly can and taking over a site that folks may either think is legitimate, meaning you don't feel that bad connecting to a, like a .org because you're used to them being, you know, nonprofit sites. They're very, very low key. They usually focus on charitable contributions and things like that. Uh, you're not really, you know, scanning your network traffic for our network defenders out there. You're not scanning your network traffic and looking for malicious nonprofit websites and stuff. So it's a really easy way to hide your C2 amongst the noise, number one. And I think the use of Discord as a potential kind of delivery mechanism there goes in the exact same vein. Uh, If, you know, I want to blend in and I want to hide my malware delivery inside of seemingly innocuous traffic, I'm going to use Discord, right? If the organization uses Discord, the traffic might be encrypted, but Discord.com popping up in my network logs is not a bad thing necessarily. So it's a really, really good way to kind of blend in, number one, 
And it's also a, a way to target those particular types of victims. The fact that we've seen, or I should say the fact that Menlo saw the targeting of government entities uh, was done primarily because who was likely visiting those types of websites, what types of people, what types of companies, what types of you know traffic would you expect to go there? It's another way of blending into the noise of hosting your malware or some sort of potential malicious link on a site that you know your target users are likely going to. Um, I would say in the same vein, you see a lot of this happen on kind of normal public websites as well. Uh, meaning, you know, if I've got a population of users who I know commonly go to a particular search engine, I might try to hijack those search results. Or if I know everyone inside of there utilizes some sort of third-party software, I might turn that into a watering hole style attack instead. So I, I don't think it's, uh, you know, if we kind of swap out the different pieces of this here, Chris, I, I don't know if it's uh, something that is necessarily new for threat actors, um, and it, but a huge hat tip to the folks over at Menlo for identifying this and calling it out as well, because um, it's often very easy to hide under the radar for the reasons I just kind of laid out. And just to be clear, like the initial attack vector would be like dropping a link in a Discord channel and hoping one of the targets clicks on it. Uh, the way that I read this, and I definitely, you know, if anyone who's who's listening to us uh, may have interpreted this one a little bit differently, I, I read it as the malware is being distributed via Discord, which makes me think that it might be kind of hosted in Discord, for lack of a better term. And kind of reading through Menlo Security's post, they talk about, you know, Discord was used to host the payload and a link to the payload is sent via email. So what I think is happening is I think the initial stager is hosted in Discord. There's probably some sort of publicly shareable link you can generate from a file and that's where it's sitting. So it looks like the user is downloading a file from Discord, which, again, in a lot of environments is probably not that suspicious. Right. And yeah, not going to look funny in the logs or anything. Like yeah. That. Well, that if you can even read it. Uh, the other thing, too, is you might have a, down, a piece of malware being downloaded inside of a encrypted Discord tunnel. So right. who knows? Hmm. All right. Well, next up, uh, we got uh, a TA569 is apparently a prolific threat actor who's been deploying website injections that run a JavaScript payload known as uh, Sock Goldish. Not sure if I'm saying that right. But recently, researchers have noticed an uptick in activity and some variation in the deployment. What can you tell us about Sock Goldish and, and what do these kinds of changes in behavior generally signal to the researchers that are watching someone like this? Yeah, so for anyone who's curious, TA-569, the TA beginning of any threat group, I believe it stands for threat actor, I think. And that's often a Proofpoint uh, association. So again, a huge, huge props to the folks over at Proofpoint for, for publishing and announcing this here for us. And it was an article that came out um, earlier this week, uh, I should say late February 2023. The, the interesting thing about this one here is exactly as you described, it is a JavaScript-based injection. Um, and what's happening is some folks might be familiar with kind of the fake browser updates injections that we've seen in the past. Uh, this one works very, very similar. Um, this one works when a user visits a site that's been compromised by a uh, TA-569 injection. Could be through a link, could be through a, uh, an email, could be through a website redirect or something along those lines. Um, and what happens is a, a lure, if you will, um, is provided to the right types of users. So the adversaries will typically configure certain criteria ahead of time that they want the victims to meet. This is very, very common. A lot of times malware will ignore or focus on like language packs, for example. So it's really easy to say, hey, I want these characteristics of someone's browser window to match. Um, the nice, I shouldn't say nice, but the reason for that is 
anyone who's not a target will not see the lure. Um, they will not kind of see it. It'll just be a regular website to them. Anyone who is a target, it will look a little bit different. It's another way to kind of weed out, uh, you know, someone who's not a target getting infected or perhaps, you know, getting rid of researchers or other sorts of yeah, things. Yeah, I was going to say it probably lowers the probability of somebody identifying exactly. them if you're showing yeah, and it it's to like, people. Uh, yeah. th- they'll likely build like um, align, uh, allow and deny lists around like sandboxing and different researcher domains and kind of default browser activity and things like that. Um, but what it does is that kind of kicks off that initial, you know, infection chain of um, dropping in that lure. And then, you know, we get into JavaScript execution. We're pushing files down to the system, asking the user to run things if need be. Um, and then next thing you know, I've turned kind of malicious JavaScript in the browser into an on-disk artifact that's now pinging back home, reaching to a C2 and things like that. You you asked an interesting part of this question too, Chris, which is like, what are the changes in behavior signal to researchers? Uh, I'm a firm believer that watching how and why adversaries do and what they do is a huge indicator of what's working and what isn't working. Um, And I think that what we're seeing when we see adversaries either change campaigns or modify their campaigns a little bit, they either are saying, hey, we tried this in the past and it worked, so we're going to just strengthen it and make it better. Or the thing that we were doing before doesn't work as much, so I'm going to try something new instead. Uh, the easiest kind of example I can think for this is something like a spear phishing campaign. Let's say you had 10 sample spear fishes in your head. Uh, you know, one of them is, hey, click these links. Number two is, you know, add me on LinkedIn. Number three is, uh, you know, please open this invoice, whatever they may be, right? Well, of those 10, some of them are going to be wildly successful. Some of them are going to just be absolute duds. So your behavior is naturally going to lean towards the ones that are most successful, and those may end up being your priority, guess what? For security researchers, those also become your hallmarks. They also become a sign that you've got a particular type of behavior or you've got a particular type of activity you like to go after or a tactic or a technique because that's what your behavior is telling you as this is successful. So it might be a combination of the two. Um, It might also be, you know, someone's got a crazy idea or there was a recent vulnerability or injection, code injection opportunity that came up or something like that. But a lot of times, it's adversaries chasing the behaviors that work or strengthening the behaviors that have worked for them in the past. Yeah, it sounds very much like the tactics a startup takes when they're trying new products or marketing campaigns yes, and stuff like that. Exactly. It's the yeah. same wash, rinse, and repeat process that we all go through. We all know it, right? We get <laughs> yeah. the, 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 the product from wherever, we try it out, and if we like it, we keep it, and if we don't, we, we move on. We try something else. So, you know bad guys are humans too they they go we have the same behavior same behavioral traits it just they're using theirs for their bad purposes yeah, different different morals uh they, they, they say ta569 is likely an access broker i've heard this is a whole dark industry within you know the dark side of the web in, in itself uh what do you know about access brokers in the scene there are they just selling access to compromised systems is yeah so this is an interesting one. Anytime you hear about an access broker, um, one thing that you need to keep in mind is the overall kind of infection chain that an organization goes through, right? So if I think about the adversarial life cycle, or you can think about MITRE's attack matrix, usually left to right, where you start with kind of initially breaking into an organization, okay? All the way to actually achieving the objectives that you wanted to achieve. So let's just Let's say hypothetically, uh, you know, ransomware was was the topic of discussion here. There is a point in time where someone breaks into an organization or, you know, breaks into a victim, gets that initial foothold, if you will. 
there's a point in time where they elevate credentials. There's a point in time where they move laterally. There's a point in time where they encrypt the data. Then there's a point in time where they demand a ransom and that negotiation process that happens. There's all sorts of like, from a coding perspective, there's little breakpoints. I was going to say breakpoints that you could drop in. And that's what things like um, access brokers and malicious types of parties like that are doing, or nefarious parties, I should say, is they've inserted a breakpoint. And they've said, okay, guess what? We've got this amazingly capable piece of malware that gets a foothold in an environment, right? We're really good at building footholds. We're not very good at everything else after that, right? We're great at JavaScript. We're horrible at escalating privileges and stuff like that. So what you'll see happen in cases like this, especially when you've got things like access brokers, is they will capitalize on their strengths pretty much. And it's weird how much human behavior we're tackling here, but that's exactly what it is. They'll say, this is what we're really good at. So tell you what, rather than, and Chris, it's numbers, right? Rather than compromise 20 environments and hopefully we can infiltrate and extract data from 20 of them, what if I got really smart and I just compromised 1,000 and I sold the access to those 1,000 because that's my strength. That's what I focus on. And guess what? It's exactly what they're doing. It's exactly what they're doing is they are focusing on their strengths and then uh, selling off access as soon as they gain access. I think it's also a little bit of risk transference as well. Um, if you get an initial foothold in an organization and you sell that off to someone, you kind of offload in a weird mm-hmm. way the idea that the attack will ever be successful, right? It's kind of like if I give you, if I sell you a book and I say, hey, go read this thing. I want you to, I, I wrote this great book. I want you to go read this thing, have fun with it. Once you buy it and walk away, you know, especially if you've paid me via an anonymous forum or some anonymous medium or something like that, I'm not responsible for whether or not you actually read it. You know, there could have been life-changing advice in there, but if you didn't read it, that's not my problem anymore. I wrote it and you bought it. We're done. Um, so lots of interesting like approaches. I will say the other side of that, uh, let's go back to that ransomware example. You see this happen in other cases, and a lot of folks are very familiar with this as well. You'll see adversaries compromise environments and get all the way to the ransom stage and then hand the ransom stage off to a third party who does the negotiation on their behalf. And they take a small cut out of it. And it's the exact same approach. It's breaking up piece of an intrusion and selling it off to the people who are most or who are you know better qualified for it. Or it's uh, recognizing that it's not your strength and then giving someone a cut of what your overall, you know, what your end, what your end money might be. Believe it or not, it's a business process. I mean, it's supply chain management. It's yeah, it sounds process. so much like the way companies run just with like bad morals. I mean, let's be clear, malware and, uh, you know, the work I was going to say the work of maliciously getting, you know, intruding into an environment and that kind of stuff. I mean, it's an entire industry. It really is. And uh, that's one thing for folks to I, I, I like to say for security researchers to remember is that you're facing an industry. And, and a lot of times we get very, I think, very personal. And a lot of folks, when you think of like a malware developer, I think a lot of folks still resort back to that kind of like hoodie in a dark basement Mm -hmm. kind of thing, you know, like, oh, there's someone who, you know, just knows computer code really well, but, you know, is, is probably has all the hallmarks and traits of every single stereotype we've ever seen. That may be true in some cases, but in, in many, many other cases, there's 
someone's figured out a way to monetize and commoditize nearly every single step of this. And they're doing it very, very well. And instead of having a whole team of people with a bunch of specialties, you might say, I'm running a malware shop, right? right? I'm going to hire 20 of the best Windows developers I can find in the world. And, and we're going to have daily stand-ups and we're going to do two-week sprints. And, we've and that's got all milestones. we're going to do. We're, we're going to have yeah, sprints. Yeah. I mean, if anyone wants to follow up on this one, there was a very, very prolific financially motivated group back in the day, a, f- a few years ago, Fin7, uh, big on credit card theft and that kind of stuff. One of Fin7's, I, I believe, I think it was their Jira ticketing system that actually got <laughs> infiltrated and got kind of disclosed and, and leaked out to everyone. But they had a fully capable ticketing system. They kept track of customers, of issues. They kept track of all sorts of technical concerns they were going through. I mean, it was a fully functioning organization. And the interesting thing about that is you look at the revenues of some of these groups and you're like, well, the only way you get to that level of revenue is via organization. You know, I mean, this is not some sort of like crypto heist where all of a sudden you're worth a billion dollars. You know, this is a targeted, very technical approach. This is focused. This is making use of uh, various footholds you've got. This is finding the right technology. This is building solutions to get around EDR and evade defenses and stuff like that. I mean, the the, the list of things that some of these organizations will go through to stay maintained and, and to stay profitable is is the same as any other company that's out there. Wow, that's one to. I'm going to go check out the Fin Seven Docs. Um, yeah, that's a fun one. Yeah. That's so uh, one. one thing I found interesting in this week's stream, which I didn't initially think of as a threat. Uh, but realized it was when I thought about it was an article someone posted about the complexity and volume of cyber attacks and how they lead to analyst burnout. You know, I, I come to security from the software side of things, which can definitely not be healthy in its own way. Uh, but I've heard over and over again about how stressful the work for analysts can be. I imagine that tired and burned out analysts are more prone to mistakes and therein lies the threat. Yeah, it's a interesting and also it's a very big concern. Um, I think the the biggest takeaway here, the first takeaway is, and I said this in the very beginning here, that our detections channel and the Intel discussions we have at Lehman Charlie, they're not any sort of like just constant stream of intelligence that comes through, right? They're curated discussions based on what our users are seeing. Unfortunately, there's a lot of organizations out there that are just bringing in streams of data. And I'm not talking like, you know, once every 24 hours, there's a nice, beautiful, templated email for you. I'm talking just raw data flowing in, you know, um, or I'll go the other side of it and environments where detection rules. Uh, I won't mention Lima Charlie's detection systems because I think we, we curate and, and have a really good setup for ours. But in some environments, analysts are left with just, I mean, thousands, thousands and thousands of things to deal with every single day. And I think a lot of it comes down to some pure psychology, which is you can't continually try to push a boulder uphill and never feel let down and never feel like you just can't do it, especially if every time you push, the hill just gets a little bit bigger. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I used to work with some analysts who at one point in time had done an amazing integration in bringing all sorts of detection rules and detection engineering capabilities and everything into what they were doing. And they were super proud of what they had built. And about a week later, half of the detection rules that they had brought in uh, were, were invalidated because the adversaries had changed their tactics and techniques. Now, with enough engineering, you can just overcome that and just bring, you know, import the new rules and stuff. 
But let's go the other route. And let's just say as an analyst, as a security team, you get some money, you build a program, your program is focused on the goals of XYZ and ABC, and you go and you achieve this thing. And then you learn that six months ago, the adversaries changed all of their stuff around, right? They changed their tactics and techniques. They changed their approach. The thing that you thought was super critical, you know, either no longer is or something that you were very dismissive of is now a huge deal. Um, I, a, a personal example of this, I remember in 2015, 2016, getting a call from some organizations who had been hit with ransomware. And they were kind of like, hey, I'm getting hit with ransomware. And I was like, what's the ransom? They're like 500 bucks. And I'm like, cool, pay it or, or restore from a backup. Yeah. You know, it wasn't this multi-billion dollar thing that we deal with now. But let's say I had built a security program around, it's never going to happen to us. You know, one person, one track mind, that may be an easy thing to come back with. But let's say I hired a team of analysts and I trained them all to think like I did and take the same approach that I did. And now we've got this obsolete or outdated security program. So how do I recover from that? I simply just give my analysts as much data as I possibly can. Right. And I just overload them and I turn on every single point of telemetry I can. And we get all the things from all the systems and we dump it all into a big bucket. And I say, you're analysts, you're trained, you're experienced. Go into that bucket and find me evil. And by the way, every time they remove a drop of water from that bucket, I add another gallon in. <laughs> so what happens there is it's really, really easy to get into. I call it analysis paralysis, but you get into that stage of you just you can't you can't beat down the amount of volume that's coming in. And I think what's happened there is it does create a very stressful work environment. It really upsets kind of the work-life balance of things. A lot of analysts also feel like, you know, because the alerts never end or because the telemetry never ends or the intel never ends, their job never ends. Right. So it's it's very, very common. And I and, think and then you throw like a log for J or something on top of that just to keep exactly it interesting, it. right? Yeah. So there was someone and I don't know who it was. If, if anyone who hears this and it was you, reach out to us. We'd, we'd love to know. We'd love to hear about that. Um, there, there, there was someone who took a vacation the day before Log4j <laughs> dropped. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it was probably one of those like, I've had this vacation planned forever. We bought the tickets. We got the resort. We did the thing. Like it was this huge long plan that they had and they've been waiting and their mind was set. Boom. Log4j drops. Yeah. That individual is the critical link in making all those things happen. So once that happens to you, and I've worked with plenty of people who have been stuck in this, this problem as well. Once that happens to you, it makes the next vacation really hard to plan. Right. You almost have a have kind of fear. post-traumatic stress. You, you, you've, you've got this, this kind of vacation planning fear where you're like, well, what if it happens again? You know, um, now I, I will go as far as to say an organization that can only get themselves out of a, you know, can only fix a flat tire with one person out of a staff of whatever, there's another issue to be fixed. Right. But more importantly, um, what that does to the analyst's mind and to the analyst brain is very, very tough. And let me be very clear for everyone too. It's not like, Hey, we need you to delay or postpone your vacation. Can you come back in at 9am tomorrow? Right. When a critical information security vulnerability drops, it is war rooms. It is overnights. It's 24 sevens because the adversaries move that fast because their whole goal is infiltrate and make money. Your whole goal is to protect an organization of hundreds of thousands. 
Unfortunately, where those goals collide is great for the adversary and horrible for someone who is looking for that, you know, in that moment, that work-life balance. Uh, but I will say, I think that a lot of it has has changed over the years. I think I've, I've and I, I know this from personal experience, I, a ton of, uh, you know, incident responders and folks I've worked with now, they're, they're, they're much less afraid to take vacations. They're much less afraid and, and much more confident in handing off the reins to someone else and things like that. And, I would say that, you know, 10 years ago, if you were like, hey, I'm going to take a vacation and you worked in incident response, there was almost a weird kind of frown upon. But I I'm glad that I think that culture is uh, mostly for the most part gone, if not faded, heavily faded away. So a huge shout out to anyone out there who is kind of, you know, on the cusp of I really need a break right here. By all means, take it, take it for yourself. You have no idea how important your mental health is. Yeah, and I was just going to say, I think that's like a sign of maturity in the industry as well, which we're seeing like it's moving towards more of an engineering practice where there isn't this one magic key person who's going to swoop in with their magical bash scripts and, and fix all the things. It's yeah. uh, you've got a proper structure and proper systems. And yeah, and admittedly, the the building of in-house security teams and security capabilities uh, helps out with that a little bit, but then also having the ability to rely on third parties. As well, I mean, Chris, you and I both know a lot of lot of folks we have at Lima Charlie are MSSPs and MDR providers, and being able to kind of say, you know what, my my team is needs, I need to have the flexibility to have my team keep themselves sane. So we're going to sign up with one of these managed services, and we're going to utilize that to help keep us sane and help keep you know an extra pair of eyes on glass and things like that. Um, and it can be a huge benefit for some organizations. It's not just outsourcing capabilities or outsourcing technical acumen and things like that. It's also saying to your team, hey, I've outsourced the fire alarm so that you don't have to pull it all mm -hmm. the time. And I think that's a very reassuring thing for, for some organizations to be in because it, you know, it removes that sense of if you're not here, something bad's going to happen. Um, and it turns it into if you're not here, we'll be OK. And then that should go a step further, which says we don't it's you know, it's not that we don't need you, but it's like take your time. Yeah. Take your time to go do what you need to do. And, you know, take your time to go reset your brain, decompress, whatever it is, and then come back to us fully charged. And, and I think there's been some really interesting studies out there that have kind of indicated what happens when you focus on kind of work-life balance and mental health and things like that. And everything I've ever read has been positive about giving people a chance to kind of be themselves and, and build the type of life they want to have. Mm -hmm. That's a long-term strategy for success, for sure. Yes, all right. The last one I want to cover today is uh, this emerging post-exploitation framework, Exfiltrator 22 or X22. Oh, this one. Yeah, I've read some articles about this one. Exfiltrator 22 with a huge, I think they have an Instagram account. Well, yeah, I saw they put an ad on YouTube. Like, this yeah, is where, yeah. Like, this is an industry with companies, you know, effectively yeah. operating as companies. Yeah. I tell you, if you ever want to disrupt, if you ever want to find a way to break into and disrupt the kind of like cobalt strike monopoly that's out there and that kind of stuff or that what used to be go and publicize your uh post-exploitation kit as if it's some sort of like celebrity or something like that um I, i've had a chance to dig into this one in fact i've already done some testing against this one too so for anyone out there we'll have some blog posts coming out soon and that kind of stuff but interestingly enough i, I i'm both kind of passive about this type of thing but also very active about this type of thing and i'll explain both of those i'm passive because okay it's Another exploitation kit, another post-exploitation kit, all right? 
And really in my head, then I start making a table and I'm like, all right, Metasploit, Cobalt Strike, Sliver, uh, Brute Rattel, X-22, so on and so forth. And I'm just like, okay, everyone gets their own little drop downs of all the special things that they do that are different from each other and stuff. Um, If I remember correctly, uh, X-22, I think when you purchase uh, a subscription or whatever to it, um, you kind of get a, a VPS, you get a virtual private server that acts as your kind of um you know hop to point or your your jump point if you will um it's hosted in the country of your choosing or the country of your operation and things like that so you know it's it's all sorts of like okay so you've commoditized like me building a digital ocean instance wherever i need it to be and stuff great right um but what i would recommend for some of our defenders who are out there is when you think about the differences between post exploitation kits You've got to think about them as, as, as funnels in a way. And what I mean by that is the things that post-exploitation kids do at the initial part of an intrusion or at the onset is likely their biggest differentiator, likely is, um, because the further I go down into an intrusion, right, I can go from, I don't know how many VPSs there are in the world. There's probably hundreds, if not thousands of uh, virtual private server companies that are out there. So I'm not going to write a detection rule to say, well, if it comes from any VPS that's out there, it's bad, right? Because that's just not going to work because I can go build a legitimate company on top of a VPS as well. And now you've blocked me out. Um, but what I would recommend maybe going the other route is saying is, okay, where do I have the crossover of exploit kits? And it usually gets down to the earlier um, detection stages, um, which is kind of that post, you know, the actual post-exploitation stuff, credential harvesting. Escalation of privileges, lateral movement, on disk, on system activities, and things like that. Now, I'm not saying wait until then. By all means, the earlier we can detect, the better. But everything I've read about X22 does a great job of talking about their hosted and external and C2 capabilities. But then the more I read about it and things like that, it's like, you know, uh, when you're using X22, and I'm reading right from the blog right now, you can choose which UAC bypass method to use based on the payload and the operating system. Well, folks, the number of UAC bypass methods out there are not infinite, right? There's only a, a limited number. And even still, they have a limited number inside of their app or inside of the kind of the, the selection screen. So my thoughts on it are, uh, I love when we get new development. I love when threat actors build out these massive exploitation frameworks because they give us amazing research opportunities. Mm -hmm. I love getting these PCAPs in and seeing what the traffic looks like and highlighting some of the differences. But I go the other route and I say, okay, so you gave me a fancy way to bypass UAC. All right. Well, guess what I'm looking for on my systems, right? Guess what kind of detections I'm looking for and stuff like that. I was like going to say, you so, can use their marketing material to go get an idea of the different well, that's it. they're using. And, yeah. yeah, and the interesting thing, now, now I will say uh, that is the like pure detection perspective, right? Let's go to the business side because we've talked a lot about how threat actors set up businesses uh, mm. on today's session. And X22 does have an affiliate program set up, <laughs> which is interesting. Um, affiliates take on the risk of responsibility, uh, take on, take on the risk and responsibility of promoting and distributing the malware, which means the original developers can kind of hide behind the scenes and that kind of stuff and just let their affiliates pass it out for them. Affiliates are paid a percentage of profits made from distributing the malware. And there's a whole chart that pulls out how the affiliate program works and everything like that. Wow. And I think it's a really interesting approach. Um, that's where I think 
you know, we talked about this. We talked about access brokers a little bit earlier on and that kind of stuff. Um, and again, it's going to feel very businessy, but it's very true. Where you can utilize your network, your connections, whether they're legitimate or not, where you can say, hey, I want you to be an affiliate for my post-exploitation kit. How would you feel about, you know, telling others what the great things we do and that kind of stuff? Um, it, it's, it's a smart technique. It's a smart technique because it means you're dropping another shield between yourself and law, law enforcement and other authorities and things like that. Um, so on that route, I, I, that is probably one of the most interesting parts about X-22 is just the pure like kind of I, I'm going to call it like new wave style of business that they're doing. You know, normally malware kits don't have X affiliate programs. And, um, you know, again, I'll, I'll use my kind of rudimentary example from before. Hey, what do you have? I have a, you know, I feel like the, the guy who's got the white, the well, the watches in the waistcoat, you know, it's kind of like, <laughs> yeah. look at all my fancy UAC bypass methods that I have yeah, right yeah. here and that kind of stuff. And and you're like, oh, what makes you different from the others? Like, well, my friend over there can recommend me. And, you know, anyways, without going too far down that road, uh, I huge fan of seeing some of the novel ways that adversaries go through and uh, kind of commoditize or create these different types of products. Because it gives us that uh, unique research perspective. And quite frankly, it opens up the field yeah. a little bit. You know, why should Cobalt Strike get all, this, get all the spotlight? <laughs> Maybe some of it should be shared by some of the others. So nonetheless. And let me just remind everyone too, I don't have anything against Cobalt Strike whatsoever. But it is a like, legitimate company that's out there. So for a while, if not still, one of the most popular post-exploitation kits out there was a cracked copy of a legitimate red teaming tool. So I think it was only natural that we would see the market come up with non-illegal versions of a post-exploitation kit and use those instead just so that they didn't have to deal with license restrictions and stuff like that. <laughs> and that is – that's like – Hacking 101, which is subverting license restrictions or subverting installation keys to get somewhere. And that's those are those are the old days of software pirating and things like that. Awesome, Matt. This was a lot of fun again. I, I'm looking forward to more. Uh, and I think I might have to uh, go put together some content and explore what these dark markets look like. I think that would be interesting to to kind of get a better sense of, of that picture. It might be a good good discussion for us on the next one. All right. OK, take care, sir. Thanks, Chris. Take care. Next up, my conversation with Rich Hyman, Chief AI Officer at Silver Sky. Hey, Rich, thanks for being on the show with us today. Thanks for having me. To get things rolling, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what your company does? Yeah, sure. So I'm Rich Hyman. I'm the Chief AI Officer at Silver Sky. Uh, I ended up at Silver Sky about a year ago after our company, Cybraics, was acquired. And uh, Cybraics is pedigree started at DARPA. I was at DARPA. I was managing a team of data scientists at DARPA. For those listeners who don't know what DARPA is, DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. It's effectively the R&D arm of the Pentagon. And we were working on a program called Network Defense. And um, the goal of network defense was using machine learning, specifically unsupervised machine learning, to perform threat detection. And so we, um, what was pretty interesting about the program, aside from the technical work, the focus on um, unsupervised machine learning, was it was also working with um, sort of corporate sponsors. So these were um, Fortune 50 companies that were volunteering their data so that the program wasn't using some of the more like academic 
statistically oriented data sets that, that you could find online, it was, it was actually using real life corporate data. And so our job was designing algorithms that could detect aberrant behavior in network traffic. Sounds like super interesting work. Uh, yeah, and- yeah we, we've, we've basically taken that work uh, that started in about 2012. We capitalized co- company in 2016, and we've been working at really just sort of expanding that initial work, that initial Darko work at Cybraix and now at SilverSky. It seems like AI sort of reached an inflection point, or at least from the public's perception. So uh, I have lots of questions for you. The first being, is there a difference between machine learning and artificial intelligence? When I think of machine learning, I think of like linear regression and other best fit models that basically map input to data sets. When I think of artificial intelligence, I think of higher order functionality. Is this the case or? Uh, yes and no, I, I would say. I would say in the most, in the most general terms, uh, machine learning is a solution. And I think artificial intelligence is more of a problem that um, that researchers are trying to solve. I think in a practical sense, a lot of people are drawing distinctions between machine learning and artificial intelligence to be kind of arbitrary, like whatever they want to call artificial intelligence. So sometimes that means whatever it takes to raise money in a Series B. Uh, sometimes that means deep learning. And I think there are probably some interesting distinctions between shallow machine learning and deep machine learning or like deep neural networks. One is probably on its ability to scale um, with more and more data and probably also the feature engineering. Historically, machine learning and statistical learning required a lot of um, a priori knowledge about features and deep learning kind of solves that a little bit. It, uh, it's sort of like an end-to-end type of pipeline. But, but um, you know, this, this was kind of like one of the central questions I asked in my book, uh, doing artificial intelligence, because I've seen people like firsthand wrestle with this whole, like, what is the difference? And, uh, and I'm not sure that, um, that arguing about what those differences are, are, are super meaningful. I think the best guide, I think, for most projects and most businesses even is still the problem that these projects and businesses solve. And not necessarily like this esoteric analytical investigation on what is deep learning and machine learning. Can we maybe talk quickly about deep learning? Yeah, I, I mean, I, what was your characterization at the start? I think you said you think when you think of uh, machine learning, you think of linear regression. I mean, in in a sense, that's all all of this is. They're all just uh, they're all just function fitting. They're they're creating functions that fit data, and so. In a sense, they're all the they're all the same things. They're certainly not intelligent. The deeper a solution is, doesn't mean it knows necessarily knows more than another solution. In fact, none of these solutions know anything. Even ChatGPT, which is getting a lot of press nowadays, it is a solution that could tell a lot of things, but it knows none of those things. And, uh, and in fact, sort of like a, a funny. And it's not even an antidote. It's, I guess, a funny experience. I had recently working with ChatGPT. I asked it sort of a question about its veracity. And it effectively said it doesn't know what it doesn't know. And I thought it was funny. It was sort of like this Rumsfeldian wisdom, um, stealing Donald Rumsfeld's famous quote. Um, But the irony is it doesn't know even, it doesn't know anything. It doesn't know what it doesn't know. It doesn't know what it does know. 
it knows nothing just it's just it's predicting just mapping your answers to this mass trove of data that it's built a way to to navigate using like a bayesian network kind of thing that's, that's it yeah and so i mean that that's incredibly powerful um i think it's application to cybersecurity, whether it's shallow machine learning or uh, deep machine learning is is important and uh I mean, it really is a paradigm shift in my estimation. Instead of learning um, from peers, sharing rules, heuristics, signatures, knowledge bases, threat intelligence, et cetera, um, you're learning directly from the adversary, from your internal network data. And I think that is a paradigm shift. It's still non-trivial and it's not easy to get machine learning to work. And it certainly doesn't replace any of those aforementioned, aforementioned tools. But um, but it but it is, I think, paradigm shifting. Yeah, I think a lot of people in cybersecurity had kind of written off AI before. And I, I think we can maybe blame this on the marketers, you know, coming in early with promises of all these things. And it has been good in my experience for doing things like clearing low level alerts and maybe finding anomalies in data. But it hasn't been anywhere towards where you could I could see it replacing an analyst or something like that. But with ChatGPT and in the sort of paradigm shift that I think we're in the middle of right now, I'm starting to wonder how far away are we from that? Good question. Um, yeah, well, the first part of that is um, people wrote AI off in cybersecurity. I, uh, I would probably challenge that assertion. I'm not sure that anyone has written off AI in cybersecurity because I'm not sure anybody has really cared much about the application of AI to cybersecurity. And this this like goes back to my first response that AI is sort of more of a problem that people are interested in solving, which is, you know, it's general artificial intelligence or it's human level artificial intelligence. They don't really care much about real world problems like cybersecurity. And I think that is because it's not, you know, the application of machine learning to cybersecurity is, is not really interested in human level AI. It's not interested in general intelligence. It's not even one of the canonical AI problems. Like most of the research, the thing that gets you into the top conferences and the top journals are focused on computer vision and language type of problems. And I think also the researchers, generally speaking, I think friends of artificial intelligence specifically, they really don't want the real world responsibility that comes with um, working on a problem like cybersecurity and uh, and implementing technology that's going to like impact real world people and real world problems. And in fact, there's this great article. I think that it, it's an old article. Uh, I think it's from uh, 1980 or 1981. It's a New York Times article where they were interviewing Marvin Minsky. I don't know if you're familiar with Marvin Minsky. He's one of the founders of artificial intelligence. And they were asking him about his approach to artificial intelligence. And, uh, and he said, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something to the effect of like, I cannot tell a machine exactly what to do because that would eliminate the problem. And I think that like, generally speaking, people that are really interested in AI in like it's, it's purest form aren't really interested in problems because they know the reality of their work is if they pro- if they design a solution that's specific to a problem, that problem, or excuse me, that solution isn't going to generalize to any other problem. Right. And that would therefore like thwart their efforts at general intelligence or human level intelligence. And so I think 
I think generally researchers would look at something as cybersecurity and uh, and be disinterested would probably be the kindest way to say it. The general artificial intelligence is still a ways out. Yeah, I yeah. agree. And I think Kurzweil, Ray Kurzweil, it said 2029. Do you think that's like a, is that, are we mapping towards that? I am skeptical of, of Kurzweil. I think that, um, what is that? His law of accelerating returns, which is no law actually at all. Yeah, he um, stated that it was a law. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> right. According to Kurzweil, it's, uh, it's a law. And I think it's a law in the sense that is, that is great for book sales. You know, I think um, creating these these nebulous laws that are based on very tenuous assumptions that I mean, the, the general assumption of the law of accelerating returns is that like all of these trends will eventually intersect and collectively produce artificial intelligence. One, I think that's a category mistake. We could look at ChatGPT, I think, and get some evidence of this. I don't think real artificial intelligence is in the same category as more data and more computation. We know what a 175 billion parameter model um, looks like now with ChatGPT, where it's collecting, oh man, I think I saw, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's a large portion of the internet. I think I saw something like 3 million words, or it could have been billion uh, I realize there's a significant <laughs> difference between those <laughs> two zeros. numbers, but, it, but it's just like these these uh, very gratuitous numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, like ChatGPT has, in my opinion, has kind of satisfied Kurzweil's law. It has more compute than um, we ever thought possible. It has more data than ever possible. It does create very coherent sentences and paragraphs, unlike anything we've ever seen. But we know that the model doesn't know any of the stuff it's saying. And so, you know, I, I think that's why Kurzweil's so-called law is uh, is a category mistake. And a lot of these laws, Kurzweil's not the only one. Well, um, I, th- I think of the Turing test right away, too. Like, ChatGPT probably satisfies the Turing test, but does that even mean anything anymore? Yeah, well, the Turing test, yeah, I, yeah that's a great example. The Turing test is is trying to trick somebody trick somebody that a that a solution is is intelligent it's not a test to determine whether it is actually intelligent and you know and i think that the the creation of the turing test is a reflection of the philosophy of the time turing was a behaviorist and behaviorists don't even think that there's a thing called intelligence um, like if you examine the Turing test in the period that existed and the philosophy that it attempted to capture, it is a defunct theory of the mind, which is like intelligence doesn't exist in the environment, uh, not necessarily. And it's not merely stimulus and response. And in fact, you know, there's there's this old behaviorist joke kind of like trying to characterize the philosophy, the behaviorist philosophy. And it's, uh, you know, a couple who had just uh, copulated and they're talking to each other afterwards. And uh, and one said to the other, it was good for you. How was it for me? And this is like kind of the <laughs> mentality of the behaviorist, which is like anything that happens in my own mind is irrelevant. It's all about what I could observe in other people. And that's the Turing test. It's like, what can we observe beha- externally? But but it's not actual intelligence. And I think, I think between behaviorism and functionalism, 
artificial intelligence has sort of been propped up on these flawed theories of the mind. Fascinating stuff. Are there specific things in security today that AI is particularly well suited for? Yeah, I uh, I do believe so. I think it's tricky still to get to get uh, machine learning to work, and I think m- the main reason that is is because most of the success in machine learning has been predicated on getting these um, problems to fit inside of like a narrow computational framework called supervised machine learning. And ChatGPT is the same thing. It's effectively a supervised learning problem. It's a masking problem. You're taking a bunch of words and you're predicting the next word word in the sequence. And that, you know, we we call that self-supervised. Well, we don't call it. Researchers call that self-supervised. But that's effectively a supervised learning problem. The the difficulty of applying um, supervised machine learning to cybersecurity is really the same problem that has existed for the traditional security paradigm of uh, of signatures and and uh, yeah, so let's just say signatures. Is it? It's very hard to know in advance what a threat is. Terribly difficult just to operationalize what a threat is, but it's it's also difficult to know what a new threat is. So zero days advanced persistent threats are very difficult to um, to find and to label. And part of the reason, another part of the reason why they're so difficult to label, is because cybersecurity or threat detection is distributed across a number of data sets. It's not it's not exclusive to firewall logs or NetFlow or AD, um, Active Directory or DNS. It's really distributed over all of these different data sets. And so I think machine learning app can be applied to, um, to the threat detection problem. Um, it's just that it's harder because it's can't, the supervised machine learning paradigm can't easily be applied to, um, to cybersecurity. Does that imply that the current solutions are trying to understand what looks normal and then just flagging things that aren't normal versus understanding that something's a threat? Yeah, so that's a good question. It's um, so supervised machine learning is um, is not really looking. There, there are really two approaches to to um, to solving problems with machine learning. One is this like decision boundary problem where you're trying to classify events. And so you might have label data about what a threat is and what um, what benign traffic or, or what normal b- behavior looks like. So that's hard, as we just discussed, because it's really hard to know in advance what a threat is. And so um, this th- that that's a supervised learning paradigm. And that's not looking at the distribution of data so much as just trying to draw boundaries between good and bad. So spam, not spam type of type of problem. The other approach is more the unsupervised machine learning approach. And that was kind of the work that we did at DARPA, which is more trying to model the distributions of data. And that is called unsupervised machine learning. Sometimes it's called generative um, machine learning. Actually, ChatGPT is sort of based on this model, which is looking at distributions. And so... You can, looking at distributions is interesting, but you kind of, it's tricky because you kind of backload a lot of the, of the problem, which is to say, if you know how to label your data as good and bad, 
in advance, then the output is already labeled for you. You know that if the algorithm predicts something is bad, you know that it's bad and you probably have some intuition on why it's bad. The generative route where you're trying to model distributions and doing anomaly detection or outlier detection is a little bit different because now you're looking, these things are typically a little more robust from organization to organization or insider to outsider, those types of uh, dichotomies. But the problem is that now you're just getting a statistical anomaly. And if you don't design the algorithm in a very specific way, you won't know what that anomaly means. And so what, what that typically means is you have to create these really narrow solutions that are oriented around a very specific threat vector. That is, the, the result of the algorithm is a statistical anomaly, but it's, it's constrained within a problem that you've already defined in advance, if that makes any sense. You sort of, I mean, right away, it makes me think, are you talking like a miter attack framework uh, method? Yeah, so like that, you, you would pick one method and build a model to detect that specific thing? Yeah, great. That's exactly what we use today. So going back to the DARPA work, a lot of the DARPA work was using these really like blunt tools to look for. They were very general algorithms that were looking for very like nebulous threats. And so the result was that the data scientists on the program would often spend weeks looking for something interesting. It would find a lot of statistical anomalies, but not only were the false positive rates really high, the interpretation, the workload was a burden on data scientists. So they had to go through, you know, the top 100 or 500 anomalies and, and find something that was interesting. And in fact, sort of this, this funny little, this, uh, this joke, let's call it for lack of a better word, uh, inside of the program was that the false positive rate was the amount of time it took you to create a PowerPoint slide for a customer. And sometimes that process took weeks. And so we knew when we were going to operationalize the research from DARPA at Cybraix that we were going to have to retool these algorithms a great deal because no customer would pay us to, to, I mean, it was basically recreating the same problem that people already had, which was alert fatigue and high false positives. And so, um, so what we ended up doing was taking these very general algorithms that were looking for sort of broad anomalies and create them really narrow. And so we, we, uh, we started to create our own sort of threat matrix and then MITRE came out with theirs and we adjust adopted them. And now we use that to, uh, to guide algorithm development. And so we create very specific algorithms for something like lateral movement. And we might have a couple of algorithms that look at lateral movement from various perspectives, but there you're getting, you're, you're getting a reduction in the false positive rate but you're also getting or increasing the interpretability, which is now I know why this algorithm thinks it is or what it is that this algorithm thinks is anomalous. It's lateral movement, for example. Well, that's very interesting. It's about atomizing the problems into narrow sets and then building individual solutions on top of those. Um, you've recently written a book called Doing AI. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about it? and why you decided the world needed a book like this. <laughs> yeah, um, thank you. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not well, I, I think it did. So um, I, did, I, I certainly had no ambitions of writing a book. I um, actually stepped away from day-to-day -day operations at Cybrex, and I was looking for, for, something, for something new. We had kind of moved from a, um, 
kind of like the initial phase of a startup where you're trying to figure out what is the problem that we're solving and for who are we solving this problem and the general sort of methodology of how you want to approach that problem to a uh, sales organization. So now we had um, some traction in the market and we had a solution. You know, I I wasn't really interested in in doing the, the sales stuff. And so I found an opportunity to do some consulting at the Pentagon. I live um, not far from the Pentagon. And, uh, and so one of the, fir- in fact, the first thing we, uh, I w- ended up supporting was this effort to define artificial intelligence, interestingly enough. And so the Pentagon had just created an AI strategy. They had just stood up an organization called the Jake, the Joint AI Center, and everybody thought it was prudent to define this thing, artificial intelligence. Like, we're, we're effectively going to be giving a mandate to the rest of the Department of Defense to do more of this thing. What is this thing that we're going to tell them to do? And so for weeks, people were going back and forth about, well, what is artificial intelligence? And I think we ended up sort of oscillating between definitions of artificial intelligence that were too narrow some that were too broad, some that were circular, like artificial intelligence is intelligence. Well, what is intelligence is defined by artificial intelligence and you just go crazy. And yeah. so um, and so we ended up just making a concession and saying, we're just going to make it so broad as to like, as to fit anything, which <laughs> is, is a ridiculous um, conclusion, I think, to, to make. We should probably have just like said, okay, you know, um, however, the thing that I was wrestling with immediately after the effort was that what we had effectively done to um, problem solvers and to even middle managers who were really going to be responsible for implementing s- this stuff is that we had just created a bunch of external goals for them. That is, it was no longer enough for them to solve a problem, but now they had to solve a problem in a very specific way. And even though that definition of AI was broad, it effectively meant you're going to use machine learning. Mm -hmm. And not all problems need machine learning. There are some problems where machine learning is great. However, there are some problems where it just makes zero sense. I just, in the last couple of weeks on LinkedIn, I've I've seen uh, an example of somebody using convolutional neural networks to solve Sudoku? Sudoku? (laughs) Sudoku, yeah. And the other example was using uh, reinforcement learning to solve the Rubik's Cube. Again, another example where we know how to solve that. Like there are explicit rules that people would follow to solve both of those games. And, uh, and so what these examples have done, and this is kind of what I saw a lot of organizations doing, lower tier organizations at the Pentagon doing, is that they were taking problems that were solved and that could be expressed with explicit knowledge by humans um, where other humans would understand that knowledge and instead use that explicit knowledge to create data, to train an algorithm, to create implicit knowledge about a problem. And I'm like, this is, this is backwards. Like we don't necessarily want people taking a problem that solves and laundering it to a new problem that solves with machine learning that creates you know, basically something with low interpretability and implicit knowledge that's very difficult for people to to explain to each other. So that was like, that was perhaps the like seminal moment where I'm just like, maybe I need to dig in this into this a little bit, uh, a little bit further. And two years later, I had doing AI. 
Very cool. I'm gonna I've got a budget for learning and I'm gonna go pick up the book after this. That's great. Thank you so much. <laughs> this is a question I ask for everybody that's on the show, so it can be as wide or as narrow as you want. Do you have any predictions for the future? No, I uh, if you do buy the book, you'll find out that I have um, a distaste for futurists who, <laughs> who never really track their predictions and they never really evaluate they, they never really evaluate their performance. And, it, and besides the fact, I, I think seeing the future is a lot easier than seeing what is right in front of us because the future, it doesn't require any details. You know, like you could predict something of having in the future and it doesn't it doesn't have to fit into experience or the real world and uh and i think there's a there's a great quote and i'm gonna i'm paraphrasing it but it's like everyone can see things far off but are blind to what's near and and cybersecurity i think is a great example cybersecurity is really a hard problem and uh and most people are much better predicting what's going to happen to cybersecurity in the future because it requires no real like explicit knowledge or even tacit knowledge about the problem that actually exists well, swinging a miss that time. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on the show, Rich. I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, look forward to following up on, on some reading. Thank you. Good luck on uh, Lima Charlie. And, uh, and thanks for having me. Yeah, cheers. And that concludes another episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. We've been having a lot of fun putting the show together and would love to hear from you. Any criticisms, suggestions, or high fives can be sent to defenders at limacharlie.io. I would also like to thank you for listening in. If you've enjoyed this show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.